Welcome to the Reads and Writes podcast with Cody Hosterman and Jason Massey. All right. So, Cody, what have you been up to? Well, um, you know, it's just been uh, hanging out at the house for the most part. I uh, had an, a nice chat with some VMware folks the other day. And the best thing that came out of it is I have a new gardener now. Um, or actually, I have a gardener now. Um, I clearly cannot keep up with the weeding um, at our new house uh, as much as I would like to. My son, he's only nine months, so he's not quite ready to do that for me. So, uh, but I did get a good recommendation and I met the guy and he looks pretty great, him and his son. So, um, you know, that, that was a product. That was one of the more productive business meetings I've had in a while, I think is getting, getting a, a gardener recommendation. How are you doing? You know, it's funny you mentioned that I just lost our gardener and now I'm converting my son who's 15. He's now going to be my new gardener. So we'll see how that works out. I, I'm sure there'll, I'm sure there'll be some learning experiences. I, I, there was a, let me just say I had a sibling, uh, that had to mow the yard once first time, first time this person doing it. Uh, and I didn't realize you kind of do it in concentric circles and just kind of zigzagged and went, went in any direction they want. It was, it was a, it was a wild, wild pattern on, on the front yard. So, you know, you learn, you learn. That should be a learning experience for him. Plus he gets a little money out of it. So that'll be good. <laughs> it's all good. So Scott Shadley, welcome. What have you been up to? Hello, gentlemen. I've been up to quite a bit, actually. It's been a while since the two of us have been able to catch up and chat. Uh, so uh, having lots of fun doing storage as usual. So uh, having, uh, talking about gardening, my son has taken over those reins. He's 21. So he's been doing the yard for several years now, but I still get the joy of cleaning up the leaves at the end of the fall. <laughs> I know it sounds like we've all got our, our yard woes, but hopefully they'll be taken care of. Yeah, exactly. And, and my son's the same way. He'll mow the lawn exactly the same pattern every single time. And it started to lay down like your hair might. So I told him at least once in a while, turn around the other direction. Just go in the other circle. <laughs> yeah. When I was young, I, I, I got it down to a pad. I would, I would do the front yard and then I would go in the backyard and then I'd get stung by ground bees. And then I would finish the side yard and then I would repeat and you know, a week later, get stung by the ground bees. It was always, always, always predictable but it's good to change things. Up. I was going to say, you got to do something about the bees. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I got stung by them, you know, <laughs> yeah, that's not usually the way you want it to happen, but no, it's been definitely a lot of fun. I uh, had a, a few years to play around with things, relocated a little bit myself. So I'm actually in Southern California now. Uh, and the two kids, one in college and one who's in high school, but graduating from college before she graduates from high school. So uh, lots of fun things going on right now. Well, that leads me into one of my first questions, which is how do you stay social while managing all the family stuff? Um, I'm not as social as I used to be uh, between work and play and everything else. Yeah, it's been a little more challenging. I've had it in my mind. I was going to write a blog for a decade and I've never been able to get past two or three entries on like a LinkedIn. I even created a WordPress site at one point. I think there's one blog post out there. Um, and usually between eight hour days and four hours of kids and whatever else. But uh, lately being down here in California, both my kids are still in Idaho with their mom. So I've had a little bit more time, but uh, of course that life got changed a bit too. So I've been keeping busy, but I like to get on social media, do Twitter posts here and there. I have my Twitter for the, you know, the fun stuff that I like to talk about or follow up on. And then I've got the company one that I'm actually managing too. So yeah, blogging, blogging is, is tough. And I, um, I've admittedly fallen 
back on that over the past year and a half because my career has changed, you know, from being a hands-on person to being, you know, a product manager. And back in the day when I was doing the more hands-on work, it was just like, well, you know what, this is what I'm doing today. So I might as well essentially take notes on my blog and then maybe it'll work out. And then bam, publish, there's a blog post. So it was like kind of part of my process. But these days in the more of the PM role, like it doesn't really dovetail that well into my day-to-day work. It's like, well, let me blog about writing this PRD. And so that that's not, you know, particularly fascinating stuff. So it's a little bit different. So it's so much tougher, I think, to get those, those blog posts out. So a lot of it right now is like asking the folks on my team, like, hey, you know what? That that sounds like a good blog post. Maybe you should write that. <laughs> and that's probably that's the culmination right now of my my blogging, I would say is hoping others write things down. Um, but you know, it's, it is tough. Yeah. The, the blogging is, it's surprisingly time consuming, right? It's gathering all that information and then putting it down on paper, right? What was your saying, Cody, about it's, well, that's not my saying, that is not my saying, but it's, uh, it's a, well, it was from Mythbusters and Adam Savage made it, made it like um, popular, but it was actually said by one of the, I think it was like one of the weapons specialists or something. And then he decided to requote it. But um, it's just like the difference between messing around and science is writing it down. Right. Uh, and I think, I think that's a, a fairly good point because it's true. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, just think about the idea of a patent. You can have the world's greatest idea, but if you didn't document it, you can't get it patented and you don't get the rights to it. <laughs> yeah, just dreaming at that point, right? Yeah, exactly. So Scott, how did you how did you um how did you get into storage? Like I this is always very curious to me, uh, like how folks get into this because it's kind of it's a very obvious part of the IT infrastructure, yeah. but like it's not something that someone sits in high school, like, you know, one day I'm gonna be working in data storage, right? So I think it's always interesting to see how people will get into that. Uh, well, it's uh, my foray into storage started with my foray into semiconductors, which came on behalf of my girlfriend in high school's father mentioning that he lost a coworker to this company called Micron. And at the time I was living in Podunk, Eastern Idaho. And even though Micron was a huge company, even back then, uh, I didn't have any idea who they were. And I looked them up online and I'm like, oh, that looks like an interesting job. And put in an application, ended up marrying the girl, taking a week honeymoon and starting at Micron the next week. And this is all the way back in 96. And then I worked my way up through Micron, I did all the different things, NOR, DRAM, D, I did EDO, DDR, DDR2, all that kind of stuff, and ended up in the SSD group, and then uh, it's been in storage ever since. I, I moved down to Southern California a few years back to work for a startup called STEC, which we proudly uh, launched enterprise SSDs as we know and love it, and pure storage wouldn't be here without us, so you're welcome. Uh, <laughs> and... Uh, from there, just kind of kept going and been staying on the forefront of everything to do with storage since then. So, and that's been just over 20 years now. So, well, you know, technically we didn't use enterprise SSDs. Our, our whole business model was around using non-enterprise SSDs and putting the Intel. So, you know, but you did, but it's true. That's where, that's where the concept of using SSD in the enterprise came for. So, so for yeah. that, we do thank you for the, yeah, for the exactly. so no. what, what did you like, what was your role in that, in that work? Right. Uh, like what it was, it, were you an engineer? Like where, where, where were you in that? Yeah, so I started as an engineering geeky guy, and I'm still a geeky guy, but I got a double E in device physics. So I was actually designing uh, NOR and NAND devices for Micron. Um, and then when I went to look at going back to school to get a master's degree, I started talking with coworkers and all the engineering guys I worked with said, you talk too much, go into marketing. And I'm like, okay, I'll get an MBA. It's easier than an MSEE. 
uh, went and got my MBA and all of a sudden started getting calls to become a product manager, product marketing and everything like that. And it's been that ever since. So I've run Pata lines, Satellite lines, SAS lines, PCIe lines and VME lines and now computational storage. So um, I've loved it ever since. Just have fun telling people one of my uh, best favorite things to do is go into a room of brand new people I've never met that is a whole bunch of engineers and they expect this marketing guy to walk in and do market numbers, this and that, and not be able to answer a single technical question. And they ask me something, you know, deep technical about the product. And I just answered off the cuff and they're like, how'd you do that? And I'm like, well, I have a double E <laughs> I used to design these things. Yeah. I'm sure that gives you quite a bit of insight as well in the way these are used in the environment and how they should be used. Yeah, it, it does certainly has helped and uh, had a lot of fun, you know, the, the engineers would say, where's your, to your point, uh, Cody earlier, your PRDs that you write, uh, I'd write the MRD or the, the product requirements document. How do you know that, that those two things don't conflict? It's like, well, because I used to design them, so I know how to put it together. They're like, you're the only marketing person who's ever actually understood that you can't have the kitchen sink and the second kitchen sink at the same time. <laughs> Yeah, there's, there's so much, you know, when we were talking to Jay and one of the things talking about the different aspects of flash, right. And how customers are using it, but then how it's starting to change a little bit and, you know, where we're starting to do a little bit of the FTL is actually being moved off of the drives themselves, which is kind of surprising. I mean, I remember when we were working back, you know, years ago, it was, we're never going to let any of the FTL out of the drive. Yeah. I mean, how, how are you seeing that kind of shift when it comes to the kind of the evolution of on the SSD part? And then, you know, we can dive into some more detail into some at a higher scale as well. Yeah. So, I mean, what it comes down to is uh, if you think about it, well, why does the FTL moved out of the drive? It's not so much that that's really uh, 100% quote the secret sauce of the vendors or whatever the case may be, but what was becoming the biggest challenge was we were rotating through these NAND devices every 18 to 24 months. Great job, Moore's Law, keep up the good work. But big guys like Microsoft and others and you big iron guys like Dell and HP all have these qualification cycles and these expectations and these test suites. And as soon as you change the die, you change the controller, which means you change the firmware slash FTL and it became an ever ending, never ending cycle of qual. And so the, you know, everybody got together and said, well, let's move some of that out of the drive so that if you change your NAND, I don't care. If you change this, I don't care. I can manage some of that. And it became because we have so much flexibility with NAND and we don't have to wait for things like rotational latency and spin up and spin down, the host can actually own more of that data placement without causing bigger grief to the, the system. You just couldn't do that with a hard drive like environment because there was no way to manage data placement in the same way you do with something like uh, a NAND based storage device. So Scott, I think, you know, one of the, <clears throat> one of the pieces that obviously you focus quite a bit on is computational storage until, until we get into, you know, what that is, I think I'd like to hear from you. How do you frame the problem that exists today that leads into then of course, computational storage itself? Absolutely. Um, it's pretty simple. Uh, think about your cell phone and go back 10 years to what your cell phone could do and how you would take a picture if you had a camera on your phone. And today where we're sitting with one terabyte class cell phones, that's the easiest way to kind of just frame the references. The amount of data that we as a society are generating is getting bigger and bigger. So we create larger storage devices, which is great. So we've got 20 terabyte hard drives and we've got 
you know, now 64 terabyte SSDs. The problem now is not capturing the data, but how do I manage that data? So once you get it put somewhere, I got to move it somewhere else. And in a storage architecture of today, we have the CPU, we have the memory and we have the storage and your storage is sitting at a petabyte of potential in a server now, right? Or even more so with some of the cool stuff that you guys are doing, but your memory footprints a terabyte, maybe two. And so you're at a hundred to one discrepancy. So how do I look through my entire storage architecture with a 100 to one discrepancy where I have one CPU, maybe two, with a bunch of cores, a very small DRAM footprint in comparison to my storage footprint. And so how do I add value to that ecosystem? So we started throwing things like GPUs at it. Well, GPUs are great fixed function add-ons to these solution sets. And we're like, well, maybe that's not good enough. Let's throw in a smart NIC or how about a DPU? Every one of these devices is bringing additional compute to the picture, but they still need something very important delivered to them, the data. And nobody has really thought about going beyond that. Storage is storage is storage, it's commoditized. We don't really care about it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna abstract it. I'm gonna throw terabytes of DRAM at it, which are more costly than petabytes of storage. And so that's what kind of this data tsunami and the 175 zettabytes we'll have in two years. Uh, being generated needs somewhere to go, but then you got to be able to work on it. And it's the how to work on it more effectively that leads you into something like computational storage. So like, I think it's, I think it's always interesting when we, we talk about these kind of problems, because I, I think a good example that I've seen recently is a little bit further up the stack, but like, I'd like to hear like kind of your, your thinking around the differences here is that um, certain newer types of database. I think Snowflake is a good example. If you use them the same way as you used your previous um, previous databases, uh, certain relational databases in particular, uh, the performance is not probably going to work out very well, right? From from my understanding, basically, it's much more tuned to say, "Hey, can you can you." At, like instead of asking for all the data, can you ask what you really need, and I'll figure it out, and then give you much less data on the back. Like, let me do the work for you. And so, my understanding is that like databases and offerings like Snowflake work much better that way instead of, hey, don't make me give you everything. Like that's not what I'm really tuned for. Give me your end question and then I'll give you that specific answer instead of just getting everything and crunching it yourself. So right. where does where does the difference on this lower layer with the storage, that storage problem and then higher layer in the application, are these similar solutions or problems? Are they different? How, how would you see the relationship between the, those two parts of the stack? The, the funny thing is they're 100% complementary to one another. Um, if you if you look at what is being done in the, the standards group, and Jay gave you a great rundown on what, you know, things like SNEA and NVMe are up to. Um, but if you look at application layers or application solutions like Snowflake or whatnot, they still have an underlying storage architecture, underlying memory architecture to them. Data still has to be serviced by them. And if you're putting a large amount of DRAM with a cache in it that's holding all the pointers, so you know exactly where to go, sure, you search the D, you search the DRAM, find the pointer, the pointer goes off, finds the data in the storage, and then that piece of data comes from the storage all the way back up to the host interface. Well, that means you're you have a very large DRAM footprint. Elasticsearch is a great one. It's been built around um, DRAM use models. It's not built around storage use models. I throw something like computational storage at it, it actually breaks, it gets slower today because it's not designed to interact with storage in the same way. But all of them are, to your point, we're building these massive pointer systems, whether they're object-based or you know individual LBA-based in the application layer, that requires a cache of some kind. DRAM, Optane, I don't care what you do with it. 
But what if you had the pointers for all of the data on a device stored at the device layer and you just send out a, a call to 24 drives in a single server and say, I have pointer XYZ I'm looking for, which one of you has it and what's the data behind it? Then you, instead of having one CPU and one bank of memory looking for that bit of data, you have 24 independent CPUs manually searching themselves for that bit of data while you're going off and doing something else. So that that's kind of the idea is it's bringing that exact concept. It's just, again, pushing it one step closer to where the actual data resides. If you've got stored data, having the device find its own information is faster than ever pulling any piece of it up into main memory and, and CPU processing. So does that mean that the way this is working is that each of the drives themselves are a piece of the compute for finding that piece of data? Exactly. And there's a, a lot of different ways it's being done. I would still call this an emerging, you know, new marketplace and different companies have different solutions on how they so solve that problem. But at that point, yes, there is a CPU inside a storage device that can be told, go look for something inside your data set. And it doesn't have to be Xeon class or high performance because it's not looking at a petabyte of data. It's looking at eight, 16, 32, 64 terabytes of data, and it's all done in parallel. So it's distributed parallel processing like you've never seen it before. So where does like, I'd like to kind of compare this to what we know is, you know, quote unquote, traditional storage, right? So like we have file, we have block, we have object. Um, where does it fall in this? Is it, is it, uh, relevant to all those normal or normal, but traditional offerings? Is it lower down the stack? Where, where does it fall in that concept of what we know of how our applications access and deal with their storage? Um, and it, reality, if you do it right, and you know, again, I said there's different interpretations of it. The company I work for, NGD, has one, one unique way. We do it with an OS-based drive. So at that point, I don't care if it's file, it's block, it's object, whatever your host OS is doing, my drive OS can do the exact same thing. So it doesn't have to be in a specific pointer file block type format. Uh, NVMe, the working group is working on a T uh, TP, a technical proposal to be implemented in next gen um, NVMe, which is based more on an object based type or orientation or the host saying, go do some work. And so there are different ways you can look at it. But at the end of the day, if we really want this market to take off, it shouldn't be one or the other. It should be available to do anything that you're already doing today, with just a little extra effort and a little less host work is, is kind of how I would look at it. And it seems to make the most sense for the market, too, because trying not to do uh, if the whole world went to an object based platform and you built a file based solution, you're screwed. <laughs> so this require then like, so if I have an application that's, uh, let's just, I don't know, let's say an example, there's a containerized application sitting there, would this, would, does it need to be rewritten? Is this more at the driver level? Like how would my application take advantage of this? Or is this something that requires a new architecture entirely, right? They talk about modernizing applications by making them cloud native. And so moving them from VMs, move them to containers or eventually go on some serverless or whatnot, right? Depending on what you're trying to do. Is this, is this another evolution of application architecture or is this something that can be fit into what we have today? Um, there are a couple of versions of products where there is a little bit of quote rewrite that's required for it. Um, the, the solution I have today is an ARM silicon based product. So, and most of the host systems we deal with today are x86 
Intel or AMD. So you have to either have a properly built container or you recompile the application for ARM. Then it's literally just a cut and paste. You SSH into each of the drives, just like you would SSH into another server in the system uh, and, and deploy your application that way. So there is work that has to be done to make the system aware that this compute layer exists. And there's actually a, a technical paper that was written uh, co-authored by a couple of our PhD students and Microsoft research on we did it and then we optimized the application and got even more value from it. So it can be a yes, it drop in and run today. It might help. It might not. But if you tailored the application to understand this new you know, quote model, then you can get even more value from it. And then so that was something that was uh, quite unique that we were able to get done together with some of our students, UCI and Microsoft. So when you're rewriting these applications is it at the storage layer or it's storage access right if you don't optimize it's a translation if you do optimize then it understands i'm going to go access this data in a little different process in a different way right a good example was an image we had an image recognition platform where it was it, the application was built on the idea of polling. So it would go fill up DRAM, look for the information, flush the DRAM, and then go refill the DRAM with the next batch of data as it searched through everything. And so it had this polling system built into it. When we copied the application into the devices, the devices executed sent back just the results files. And so that was, there's only one cycle in the DRAM that was really required because the data set was so much smaller coming from storage into memory, that the CPU is literally just going through an if then else loop 30, 40 times that it didn't need to do because it already had everything it needed. And so they literally just went in and, and reset the polling and reset how the data is being delivered to the, the host and, and solve that problem. I'm guarantee there's certainly much more complex iterations that exist out there than something as simple as that, but that's kind of the low hanging fruit type of solution. Right, you're just talking about the concept, right? about traditional access versus this computational access versus right exactly and, and this is definitely not a solution that's a one-stop shop am i saying that computational storage is going to make the dpu obsolete or the gpu obsolete absolutely not they're marriages made in the compute sphere of the world um, and i guess one of the easiest ways to look at it is if you think about an autonomous vehicle because um, there's a finite way to look at that and Anything that's driver seat forward is real time. Data is coming in and being analyzed before you do anything else with it. It is literally the cameras are being trained, are being inferenced against a model instantaneously to make sure I don't hit a bike, a car, a tree. I don't turn the wrong corner. So anything front of uh, front seat forward of, a, of an autonomous vehicle is instant now GPU, CPU, DPU, whatever you need it to be uh, processing because you're not putting the data anywhere. You're going right into a processing engine. If you look at anything that's behind the, uh, the front seat from the back seat to the trunk, the trunk is where you store anything you want to keep. Once it's stored, computational storage will do better job of processing that data than bringing it back forward and inhibiting the forward looking aspect of the, of the vehicle. So you take a car, cut it in half, anything that sits in the front half of the car is gonna need a XPU, some form of processing unit on real-time data. Anything behind the front seat is gonna be data that's stored, needs to have a model training update, needs to have inferencing done after the fact, a log file sent up over the, the 5G or whatever the G is at the time. That's all where computational storage plays. And that's the easiest way that I found as a model today to explain the difference of the value of these different types of compute resources. 
So who do you who do you see as <clears throat> the target audience for this today? So like taking, you know, literally today as an example compared to, you know, maybe in four years or two years or six months, right? When there's more folks that might be into that use case. I, I don't know. If I'm administrator Sally, application administrator Sally, or whatever the case may be, what is the problem that I'm might be specifically experienced that I might want to look into implementing this in my environment? So like if what what is what is what is the pain point I'm directly experiencing that I'd say, you know what, computational storage is what can really help me here. How would I know what that that side effect is so I can really dig into this and look into adding this into my infrastructure? Yeah. So if if you look at it from a system administrator data data center scale type of solution, the, the biggest bottleneck you deal with in the rack today is really the network interface between wherever your storage is and the processor that needs that information, whether it's a JBOF or whatever else, or top of rack versus, you know, somewhere else in a rack next door. And so if I'm pulling data out of storage in one device, sending it over any kind of network connection, I've got a bottleneck in the network. It's a finite pipe. And if I need to move a garden hose worth of data uh, or a fire hose worth of data through a garden hose, if I can reduce the data set to the garden hose, then I've solved my woes. And that's, one of the concepts at that that large of a scale of, a, of an envelope is taking whatever pipe you've gotten instead of moving mass amounts of data over it shrink that down so if you're doing a mongo database and you're looking at how your sharded environment is put together across multiple servers and things like that each one of these devices can be an individual shard all combined within one single server they're all local to one another and they have one data center you know, connection in the way of whatever ethernet you're attaching it to or fiber or whatever. And because they're able to process the data, you're only taking information out that really matters. Whether you've got the pointer, know what you're looking for, or you've got to go search for data, you're searching for it locally, you're not searching for it in some kind of abstract fashion. And so from a, that kind of scale, it's kind of one of those uh, aspects of looking at it from that perspective. Yeah, so I, I guess like I'm um, I'm thinking through this. Like I, I see there's two two types. I mean, there's maybe more, but let, I'm just for, for purpose of conversation to say there's two types of vendor features that I I might care about as a customer. There's one that it's like I need to personally interact with this. Um, let's say, hey, do you have a REST API? I, I like to script things and I want to REST, right? And that's something I might personally interact. And then there's something to give a VMware storage example because that's that's my topic. Um, is something like VAI, right? There's Xcopy and Write Same and uh, the hardware assisted locking and you know a variety of others. And basically they're like, hey, I have a problem. I know this thing solves the problem. I don't really need to do anything to use it or engage it. I just need to know that my environment supports it and that it'll work. Where do you see computational storage falling into? Is this something that your end application owner might need to interact with on a database basis or fig figure something out? Or is this at a layer where it's kind of more of a vendor to vendor interaction that needs to be focused on? Um, it's a little, especially today, it's a little bit of both. There are ways that you can make it quote, agnostic and transparent. There's a couple of solutions out today that are doing things like that, where it, it, the vendor to vendor communication like uh, does all the work for you. Uh, actually, a good example of it that has nothing to do with my technology is Los Alamos National Labs just got together with SK Hynix SSDs. I did a comms uh, computational storage algorithms and put it into a Bluefield uh, architecture and they created the world's first computational storage array of, of technology to solve some high performance problems that Lanel's dealing with. And that's, you know, a marriage of several different companies putting things together 
And in that case, it's custom written platform, right? So that is someone that took the, the API route and the direct control of everything route to get it done. Um, where we do see others that are looking at, you know, for example, we did it, we're doing a project right now live with VMware that was uh, published in VMworld 2020 around deploying GreenPlum at the node level in each one of our devices, because we're a Linux OS, we can actually be a GreenPlum node per drive. And we took a 16 server rack down to two servers because we didn't need 16 CPUs anymore. They were all within the drives. And that became where it was just a vendor to vendor the user didn't see any difference in what the platform looked like. They interacted with it just like they would have in the previous version, but because VMware and NGD put the platform together that way, the user had no idea something had changed other than that um, the implementation costs, if you will, were reduced. That's really cool. I love, I love to see those types of things. Cause it's just, uh, you know, it's like, Hey, if you, you, you need, you have this architecture and you have these components, then you'll, you'll see that benefit. But I will say that, Green Plum gives me um, some bad bad memories. Had nothing to do with Green Plum. I've only in my life done one overnighter when it comes to work, and it was about it was EMC at the time. It was we were we were trying to build a reference architecture around Green Plum on a, on a storage platform at the time, and it, there was a lot of performance move uh, configuration that we had to do all night to get it working. We did eventually, but it was a lot of a lot of work. So I certainly see the opportunity in those environments for some performance acceleration. Yeah, um, that one was interesting because when, uh, so we did this with the Octo group over there at VMware, uh, VMware and he took it to the Green Plum product team and they're like, you can do what? <laughs> so to your point, a, a lot of these, a lot of the struggles that we're dealing with is it, it took me you know, several years of being at this organization and becoming as social as I was and as vocal as I was to get people to use the term computational storage, let them understand how to implement it. And then people are still trying to wrap their heads around what can I really do with it? And we're still dealing with that to this day on exactly what can I do with it? Is there this perfect killer app? And there's just a lot of different things it offers that it it's still a little bit of a wild west that needs to be better articulated. And that's kind of the focus now is showing exactly how to use it versus necessarily explaining what it is. Yeah. So, you know, providing that to customers that don't need the underlying technology details, right? Yep. You're presenting that, look, this is what we can provide. This is the result. Not so much. This is how you get to that end point. Exactly. Here, here's the value you bring. And one of the bigger challenges, the term storage still is, and I'm sure you deal with this a lot, Cody, uh, when you hear the word storage, everybody thinks commodity cheap. It can't be expensive. It's not worth it. I have plenty of other ways to wrap around it. And what we're really doing is doing edge computing. We're, we're creating an edge compute architecture for these customers to do something, to do more with less. And in a lot of cases, the TCO of the package, the cost, you know, the upfront CapEx is always going to be more if you're comparing to a hard drive. If you're comparing to an SSD, you're quote on par. But if you look at the CPUs you need, the GPU you may or may not need, the power consumption over time, getting to this concept of carbon neutrality, there's amazing benefits that this technology can bring because I can get work done in the same amount of time with less power. I'm at a data center scale, that's kilowatts and megawatts and you know things like that. If it's at, in a autonomous vehicle, if I don't rely on the GPU to do as much work, that means I'm consuming less battery power. I can go 30 miles further on my charge. Those are the types of 
values that we're seeing. It's not a dollar per gigabyte or an IOPS number, or is it Gen 3 versus Gen 4? Am I getting six gigabytes per second? The gigabytes per second don't matter when you start doing this type of work. Yeah, it's almost like gigabytes per second are worse. That's like, well, if we're doing that, that my egress charges are going to be bad. You know, like it's actually having a lower number is bad. I mean, it's like that old, you know, maybe not old saying, but it's like the fastest IO you can make is the one that you never have to issue, right? So it's kind of that. Exactly, I think it's that, exactly. That that's our motto. <laughs> it's like, I, I can move and do more useful result. I can give you more value from your data at one gigabyte per second in my solution than you can with 10, six gigabyte per second devices in the exact same architecture. And I can build a server by any vendor and show that if the workload is right, and again, it has to be kind of that, that concept, is it real time, is it stored? If it's a stored data application that you're doing any work on, I can reduce CPU size, I can reduce GPU count, I can slow everything down in the system so you're consuming total less power, reduce the data pipe costs of egress across the network and still make the solution work. A question I like to ask um, with any of these technologies, because I, I find it I find it always very interesting to see how these things go, is that we have on-premises, right? And that can mean whatever you want it to mean, right? Colos or certain edge or whatever, right? And then there's the hyperscalers, right? Inside of their data centers. Is, is computational storage available in both places today? Is it more, is it more routinely deployed in a different place or is it everywhere? Is it the edge on-premises, the hyperscalers? Where does it fall in that multi-cloud, hybrid cloud yeah. world? Uh, a lot of it today is on-premises because it's, it's a new it is a new storage device that's installed in these platforms. It's not something, I can't make computational storage work on an existing server somewhere. I have to put in a new server with these devices that support this feature set. And so a lot of it's on premises. And then your, your thing about charge for egress, the hyperscale guys like the idea for backend stuff, but not something that you or I as a user can quote acquire as a service today, because if I'm reducing the egress, I'm reducing the money they make, even though I'm saving the user money. And so those are some of the, the business dynamics that we're running into. The technical dynamics make a lot of sense. The business dynamics are somewhat prohibitive in some cases for that kind of an adoption aspect of it. But most of it today is someone who owns the box. It's a new, newer deployment. A lot of it's on-premise or edge-based. Um, edge is really uh, kind of becoming the big place for it because those platforms don't have the same kind of infrastructure available. So you already have to do more with less. Let's do even more with that less that you have. You know, one of the things you mentioned there, you know, we're talking all about flash. Where do you see spinning rust going? I mean, is there still going to be a use for any of this because of the way that the media is accessed, the data is accessed? Is there even a future for HDDs or spinning rust? You know, I thought we'd finally killed those suckers off, but they went and created an NVMe interface on a, on a hard drive. <laughs> and instituted all the stuff we hated about spinning media into the best known flash interface of NVMe. Uh, people will still look for that sub penny per gigabyte bulk storage, hard drive spinning type of solutions. Uh, in the SNEA working group that we have on computational storage, there's actually a, a case study in the uh, appendix of our current model document written by uh, our friends at Seagate around how to use a hard drive in a computational storage environment. So 
there, there's still opportunity there. It's a different level of in, interaction and how it's deployed. But it, unfortunately, no, we have yet to kill off the spinning rust completely, even though I would love to say we have. Well, I'm assuming that the, the hard drive that the, in that reference architecture is just to balance out the floor to hold up the, the flash array that is actually doing the computational storage, I assume. Right. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> now, the thing is, too, though, I mean, when we keep these spinning rust drives going and propagate the use of them, it's increasing the power usage as well. Because, I mean, these things require so much more power to run. Yep. So it's amazing that the drive to continue to use them, you know, I think that TCO is a big piece of it. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, you remember we did some testing and it was you know, just on a single node when we were talking about using all flash versus spinning media. And it was like a thousand Watts versus like 300 Watts. Yeah. It was incredible. And so, you know, I remember talking to vendors and partners and saying, you know, you guys really should start thinking about looking at flash and the obvious argument and the continuous argument was I don't need the speed. And it was never, that's not the case. I said, what if you could reduce your power utilization by 50% or more? Yeah. Isn't that worth the value? I don't care whether you need the speed. You could literally reduce the heating costs. And we all know that the data center is one of the most expensive just by switching to flash media. Yeah, exactly. And I, I, I make, I poke fun at the fact that Microsoft dropped a data center at the bottom of the ocean and now they're killing the barrier reef because it's getting too warm in the oceans. We're literally boiling our oceans. But to your point, when we were back in the original days, right, I had a 73 gigabyte fiber channel, three and a half inch drive that cost $30,000. And that mindset is still exists in a lot of the old school mindset that they're just too freaking expensive. And now you're talking, I can get 32 terabytes for under, you know, 25 cents, 20 cents, 18 cents a gigabyte. But people still, when you look at it, the engineering team, right? I can go talk to the CTO office, the storage architect, they'll qualify the stuff all day long. You go to the buyer and the buyer's like, I can't afford it. And it's like, well, no, look at the, look at the TCO. And they're like, well, my job isn't to reduce TCO. My job is to reduce CapEx. And until we get beyond this whole thing that storage is, meant to be a non-existent useless CapEx that I just have to have, we're still gonna be fighting those battles for some time because the the buyers don't get compensated for TCO, they get compensated for spending less upfront. And the OPEX is much less of a concern for them today or has been until recently when carbon neutrality kicks into play. I think that's where, you know, it's gonna have to start coming down to the company level where this boils down and rolls down to the decision maker that says, look, we have to, you mentioned carbon neutral. You're fighting trying to be carbon neutral when you're having to do that much power per device, where if you just switch, you're going to greatly reduce that carbon footprint. Exactly. And you think you think you guys are the ones that work at uh, all flash vendors here. I'm the one that's supposed <laughs> to be dunking on HDD. So on this show, we dunk on iSCSI and that is it. <laughs> <laughs> Buddy, I love it. Well, no, and I think the, the stuff to your point, Cody, that you're making and the reason why there's so much success there is it's it's found the right it found the right niche at the right time to grow the growth of the flash ecosystem in a way that people hadn't thought of it. And you're doing it at a level where people can accept it because it's at a platform level. If I had built a 
the equivalent of what Jason and I used to work on when we worked together at Micron, a system level solution that had a bezel on it and everything, I'd probably be 10 times further along in my environment than I am today. But because I chose to start at the lowest level with this little guy that plugs into a tray, it's almost like we hamstrung ourselves from an environment perspective because of that, because there's so much negative uh, aspects of what that, the, the connotation of what a trade device means versus a system level device. So one, one, one topic we didn't quite hit on here around computational storage, I think is one that's on everybody's minds. I mean, it's always been on everyone's mind, but it certainly is to these days is security. I like anytime you're not sending data, um, I think that's a good thing, right? When it comes to security. So is, is this an important play around it? It sounds like it might be. Um, actually, the, the SNEA team has spent the last five months going over what are we going to put in the spec around security before we release the first public full uh, release of it because it's such a hot topic. Um, so to your point, if you really think about the fact that once stored never moved or once stored raw data is never shared again because we can compute on it, transform it, resave it, delete the original whatever, Yes, we are actually able to provide customers a more secure solution than any other aspect, self-encrypting drive, TCG, Opal, FIPS, doesn't matter. Self-destructive drives. Back in the day, I remember there was this nice Chinese company that had a little red button you could push and they smoked a drive. You know, The security available from a computational storage product is actually far and beyond above any of the security layers we've got in existence today if people catch on to it. And we've actually got some really good work with some uh, three letter organizations in that regard, because they, they actually have started to see some of the value of that. And so do I need an Opal drive with computational storage? The answer is to be totally secure. You really don't have to have Opal or Keeper IO or any of these cool security layers. All you need is an application that you install on the device that transforms the data in some way so that once it comes in as raw, it never leaves again in any readable format. And that's something that computational storage at the lowest level could do today by any of the vendors and just amazingly uh, break down the, the efforts of the hacker. The only challenge is making sure that the application being copied into the drive is an original, right? So if the host knows what they're doing and they're the only one that can touch the drive, you're in great shape. But there is a hackability of it that still has to be understood because it is an application being installed on a drive. But I think overall what you're saying, and Jason, if he disagrees with me, cut his mic, that if you're using computational storage, you can, you can turn off your firewalls. You're good to go. Uh, I would say that there's the opportunity. <laughs> to go. Yeah. I would be I'm remiss to say that, yes, you could literally cut the firewall. <laughs> Jason, it was cut his mic. I mean, right? I know. I'll edit that out. <laughs> deal in post, no worries. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I guess one, one I, I, you kind of lobbed my next question over the plate to a certain extent. You've mentioned this a couple of times. Um, so SNEA, your involvement with SNEA around computational storage, like what, what, are the, what are the main focuses right now for you there at SNEA? Uh, so we are in the process of releasing the 1.0 of a architectural programming spec that defines all the different inside pieces of how you interact with the drive. Uh, SNEA being SNEA is not picking a specific fabric. So we have a, a partnership with NVMe, if you will, uh, because that seems to be the, the first place. NVMe is working on a very specific command set for one implementation of computational storage as they see it. We're building a more uh, holistic model that says, if you're going to build a drive, here's the 
resources, here's the engines, here's the functions you have to think about in order to accomplish that. And we've been working on that spec a little longer than planned. Uh, and it's expected to be at the 1.0 where the 0.8 that's available on the SNEA website today is everything but security. And, and so once we get the final thought processes assembled on the security piece of it, we're gonna have that be live, ready and, and raring to go. And then the next step is to further deep dive into finding that killer app for how to manage these things in a way that it's uh, further solves the implementation problem. All right. Well, Scott, this has been very informative and as usual, really love the deep conversations where we dive into so many different areas of storage. Really appreciate you coming on and giving us a big insight into all this newer aspect of storage. Absolutely. My pleasure. As you can tell, a lot of my answers are definitely focused more on the fact that I'm a hardware guy than a software guy. That's my next fun step is to spend more time with my friends in the, uh, the software platforms and understand how we can better manipulate the, the software solutions that take better advantage of the hardware that's now being made available to them. Well, you know, you I mean, you know, right. If you, if you get to a super deep hardware person, you eventually become a software person. If you get the super deep software person, you eventually become a hardware person. So that's just, that's just the way it goes. Where can people find some more information about everything you've spoken about? Uh, well, so SNEA, of course, is SNEA.org. Uh, there's a whole section on computational storage for it there. Uh, NVM Express, as the official working group, does have information they've posted. Uh, lots of interesting content has been shared in different uh, SNEA-based events like Storage Developer Conference, so SDC. And then if you're interested in seeing what NGD has to offer, it's ngdsystems.com. And uh, it's easy to find me, scott.shadley at ngdsystems.com. All right. Thank you very much, Scott. Cody, you want to wrap us up? I think I do. Yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure as always. And as you know, here on our podcast, <clears throat> we may not always be 100% read, but we're definitely 100% right. Thanks for tuning in and we'll catch you on the next episode. 